Blog Talk Radio. At first I was afraid, I was petrified, kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong, and I grew strong, and I learned how to get along and so you're back. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, and tonight I want to welcome an author that has been so patient and kind with me. She wanted to come on right after my beautiful man died, and I had stopped the show because I just didn't have the heart to do it. Well, she has been such a trooper, and I so, so appreciate her. It's author June Trope, and she and her twin sister wrote their first story, The Steam Shovel, when they were six years old, growing up in rural New Jersey. Such entrepreneurs at six years old. They sold that story to their brother Everett for two cents. And June says, I don't remember how I spent my share, because at that time you could buy a fistful of candy for a penny, and she knew then that her destiny was to write. She is an award-winning middle school science teacher. She used storytelling to capture her students' imagination and interest in scientific concepts. 
Years later, as a professor of teacher education, she focused her research on the practical knowledge that teachers construct and communicate through storytelling. I wish I'd had her when I was in school. Her first book, From Lesson Plans to Power Struggles, Corn Press 2009, is based on the stories new teachers told about their first classroom experiences. Now, Professor Mitra, I hope I pronounced that right, at the State University of New York at New Paltz, June devotes her time to writing the Miriam Bat Isaac mystery series. Her heroine is based on the personage of Maria Habria, the legendary founder of Western Alchemy, who developed the concepts and apparatus alchemists and chemists would use for 1,500 years. She lives with her husband, Paul, in New Paltz, where she is breathlessly recording her plucky heroine's next life-or-death exploit. You can check her website at junetrop.com forward slash authors dash biography. Her pen name is June Trop, but she's also known as June Trop Zuckerman. She publishes her weekly scholar work under the name of June Trop Zuckerman, R.J.T. Zuckerman. And June, thank you, thank you, thank you for putting up with me and for being persistent and for coming on tonight. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you invited me, and I'm so happy to hear your voice. I've listened to your program, and it's just a wonderful experience for whom you're interviewing. Well, it's thank you. I, I took a lot of lessons from, from Johnny Carson. You know, he was a master at what he did. He he let people talk, and more times than not, his he had notes, but they usually went over his shoulder because his conversations would just go off on their own and you couldn't wait to to see him at night because he was going to have so much fun with his guest. He did. I remember him. He was a master at his craft. He was. And if I can be as a third as good as he is, then I will say I am successful. So let's start with being six years old, writing a story, and selling it, you were an entrepreneur at six years old. How did that all come about? Well, it came about in part because I have a twin, and we we lived in a rural area of New Jersey, so there wasn't much exciting to do, and we told my brother that we didn't know what to do that day. He said, go out. Go outside, look around, and write a story about what you see. So we did see what I called then a steam shovel. And we didn't know how to spell shovel anyway. So we could call it whatever we wanted. So we wrote a story about the steam shovel. And my brother was very pleased. He was very proud of his little sisters, and so he gave us two cents. I believe he gave us two cents each, but we could have shared it. I really don't even remember. But I do remember the satisfaction of writing to be able to put into words something that you feel and then be able to revisit it and have it make sense to someone else is really a great satisfaction. It it really is, and, and only those of us who are storytellers understand that concept because we know what we're thinking. We know what the voices in our heads are saying. We know what we're trying to convey. When somebody says, I get it, it's like, wow. They understand but it. it. Really, mm-hmm, but it really is such hard work. It is. It really is. Some days I'm, I'm going, well, you, why do I do this? Yes, it's hard work, but it's just so satisfying to be able to get that out and get it on paper. Now, I wonder if you have the experience I have. I can go back maybe a year more later and read what I wrote and say, I can't believe I wrote that. I do. In fact, there was a scene in one of the books I wrote that, when I heard it on audio, I went, I wrote that? Yes. That's pretty darn good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
and and you wonder where some of the stuff comes from because you're you're if you're like me you're writing along you're into this story and then all of a sudden this paragraph or this sentence or this page comes out and you go back and read it to make corrections and and proof it and you're going where did that come from yes i've had that experience it comes it's from it. deep inside and you know, i, I think it must come from I think it must come from a different part of your consciousness. I really don't know how that works, but I've had that experience, Yvonne. It's like an out-of-the-body experience. Your 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 brain and your hands are independent of anything else, and they're just doing their own thing, and you don't even realize what you've written until it's done. Yes. And that's really when the hard part comes in because you're editing it and you want to make sure that it sounds good. It has to sound, you know, we write with words, we use the written language, but we want the reader to be able to hear it as the oral language. Yes. So that's hard. That's hard. And you have an advantage and and. And I was very sincere when I interjected that I wish I had had you as one of my teachers in school because to be able to have a storyteller as a teacher to teach science and the things that you teach in school, don't you agree that sticks with those kids? It it, it just sort of becomes a part of the things they think about because it was a made interesting b it was made understandable and and intelligible and it was fun i do believe that we learn best through stories think about all the stories that humanity has shared the oral language and then finally the written language we learn best through stories because stories conceptualize, a pr- contextualize a principle for us. And so, you know, it's the next best thing to being there and learning something directly, learning it through a story, seeing the context of the story, getting that image also. It's not just words that they're learning. They're learning an image, and it has an emotional appeal, a personal appeal to it. So there's nothing better than learning through a story. Oh, you just gave me goosebumps. Because my my late husband and I used to talk about that all the time. And all the he was a great reader like I am, and my mother was, and we would all we all read the same genres, and we would discuss the books, and. We always found certain things in the books that appealed to us or that we learned from that we didn't know before, people, places, things, history, life's lessons, and they stuck. Yes, they and do for stick. A, for a young person in school to have, to let's say a struggling, a struggling student, to have something stick because the teacher was a magnificent student storyteller and brought that subject alive is a gift, June. That is an absolute gift. I do think it worked. I think it worked for some. You know, it's been many years. It's been, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly how many. My arithmetic isn't that good anymore. But (laughs) it's been many decades since I left public school teaching. I taught junior high school and I really loved that age group because they were so game. They, I still hear from them, Yvonne. Something will come up and they'll say, I remember when you taught us a song about friction. You know, I might start a lesson doing something rather outrageous. And if it was about friction, because I was a science teacher, I would teach them a song about it, or they would make up songs for me about it, depending upon how things worked out that day. And we would uh, do something very creative with the material. I believe that that transformation 
taking, let's say, a, a scientific definition for friction, and then in your own way, your own unique, individual, idiosyncratic way, transforming it into something that you personally relate to, whether it's a song, a story, a little play that they would act out about, uh, the hormones. We were talking about one day the different hormones, and each little group had to do like a charade to act out their hormone. But you see, that's transforming a bit of theoretical knowledge into something that's highly personal and I'll say practical knowledge for them. I love it. So that's why I, I believe it works. I love it because then they get to own it. Yes, they get to own it. I, I wish that the people who are in charge of our educational system could step outside of the box that they put themselves in and understand, A, children learn on a different level, for one thing, and, B, if learning is, and I'm going to use bad grammar here, if learning ain't fun, learning ain't going to be taught, and learning ain't going to be retained. That's right. I agree That's why we have so many kids that fail because it's not interesting. It's not fun. They cannot own it. It becomes drudgery. Yes, they have to own it. And to own it, they have to be able to transform it. They have to be given that opportunity to either write a story about it, make a little skit, sing a song about it, or any other kind of transformation, a cognitive transformation. And then when they hear their classmates' transformations, which I guarantee are kind of funny, <laughs> certainly memorable, they, they get a broader perspective on the concept. I on their level. I've, it's automatically on their level. Exactly. I bet you were the most, for lack of a better term, lusted after teacher in the school system. <laughs> well, I did stay a long time. <laughs> so I, after I taught public school, I did go to graduate school, and I became a professor of secondary education, particularly science education. And then when I retired from there, that's when I started writing. Again, it's a cognitive transformation that you're going through. You're creating something that's uniquely yours, and at the same time, you hope to be able to engage others. My vision of my reader is somebody who's in a waiting room somewhere, God forbid, a hospital waiting room, but some kind of waiting room where there's nothing really to do, and this can give them an escape. And someone that feels that way and someone that is a true storyteller can offer that escape because when I can get lost in someone else's book and I look up and four hours have passed and I haven't moved and I finish the <laughs> book, I'm going, what just happened? <laughs> I love it. You don't want to put it down. You want to turn the page no. and see what happens next. And I catch myself going, just one more chapter. Just one more page. Well, before I know it, just one more chapter and just one more page is the last page. And I'm going, why is it over? There needs to be more. <laughs> and and look at all you've read. been able to look at all you've been able to imagine while yes. you've been doing the reading. You yes. have really created. You know, the author might say the character is short and fat, but your imagination is the ultimate arbiter. 
that character to you might be tall and thin, and tall and thin it is. Your imagination is is the real creator. The author can promote that, but you as the reader are the ultimate creator. And and each reader has a different perception of the characters and the places. Yes. Yes. When 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 my husband was alive, he let it, read a lot of the Jack Reacher series. He and my mother both. Well, in their minds, Jack Reacher was one character, and and they both felt the same way. So when they made Tom Cruise Jack Reacher, my husband goes, uh-huh. "That's not Jack Reacher. He's too short." <laughs> That's right. And he's too so pretty. Each person. <laughs> I didn't catch the last thing. What did you say? So, each... and and he's too pretty. He's too short, and he's too pretty. Yes, Jack Reacher's yes, not short is. or pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so each one of us creates the book for ourselves, and each one of us gets our own unique meaning from yes. the book. So an author puts it out, but it's the reader who does the ultimate creating. And this is where someone who does not read a lot or reads with a closed, what my mother called a closed mind, loses out. Because if you read, no matter how, quote, unquote, bad the book is, or no matter how you don't read that genre, if one will read it with an open mind, my mother always said, one can get something out of it, and she was right. Yes, she was. And that's why I I will read just about anything from the dictionary to an encyclopedia I have all my life, because I thirst to know things. Even fiction books have some brevity in it. Yes, a fiction, for the reader to be able to make sense of it, has to, in some sense, have a connection to real life, whether it's a historical character or uh, in science fiction, a future. They still have to have some connection to a life that the reader can Immerse in. Now, do you just do your um, the series that you're working on now, or are you going to branch out into a completely different series? Are you just going to carry this character as far as you can carry her? For now, I'm carrying her, but I did write a short story that was science fiction, set in the future, and it was set in a city, New York City, that's very familiar to me. So I wanted to see, I wanted to experiment, not only to do something different, but my Miriam Bot Isaac books are written from Miriam Bot Isaac's first-person point of view. And this short story I wrote called... Hmm. <laughs> Just, uh, let me see. I'm going to have to think about that. Like, oh, it's called The Deal. Now I remember. That story, The Deal, is written in the third-person point of view. So every once in a while, I'll write a short story just to get an idea of something else that I could practice and see whether I can use that skill again, maybe in Miriam Bot Isaac, but maybe in a different book or series. So after a while, I think I want to experiment with something else, something a little different, either a different time or a different point of view, different characters, different relationships. And then I think going back to Miriam Bot Isaac can make me better, can make me more lively. It's a kind of you expand your skills and you you bring it back to wherever uh-huh. you want to focus it. You do. You, so you absolutely yes. do. 
And I'm going to. So I have experimented. Go ahead. Keep going. Only that um, experimentation, having that courage to experiment, to try something new, I think is very important. Like you were saying to me that you've painted in acrylic and then you tried oils. And it's a little different technique, but there's something wonderful about having the courage to try something new. I learned my my philosophy was this, and, and I thank many people for encouraging me, is that to have failed is to have never tried. Okay. And I would say... What my teacher told me uh, to help my students who might not have really gotten something, I'd say to them, there's no such thing as a bad attempt. It just means your paper isn't finished yet. You know, there's always more you can do. I like that. It's not finished. That is great. There's no such thing as a bad attempt. It's just not finished yet. Yes. And in 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 artwork, and my art teacher called it a, a happy mistake. Okay, so you you did something that you didn't really like. Let it dry and make it a tree. Or as um, yes. one of the uh, other artists would used to say, well, here, just put a happy tree here. Put some put some birds up here. Here, these are birds now. We messed the sky. These are birds. <laughs> Yes. So you you don't you don't let things like that paralyze you into not finishing the project or or paralyze you into not moving forward and you don't allow other people's opinions because they are just opinions to deter you from those things that are your passions. Would that be a true statement, June? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And going there, that segues into my next question. Why did you decide to go into the um, time period that you went with Mary and Bad Isaac? For for those that, that don't know... That is an Israeli name. That's a Jewish name, and it's it was a time period of of the Caesars and the the pharaohs, and a time period of enlightenment. Would that be a fair assessment? I decided to set my books in ancient Alexandria, in the first century of the Common Era which was just maybe, let's round it off, about 50 years after the Republic, the Roman Republic fell, the empire was born, and Alexandria was occupied by the Romans. So it became the melting point of three major cultures, the Egyptians, the Greeks, because it had been conquered and the city had been built by Alexander the Great and the Ptolemies. Ptolemy was his general. But then you had the Roman influence on top of it. So it was very rich culturally. What enriched it even more was that Alexandria was the crossroads for trade, trade coming in from the off the Silk Road from China and trade within the Mediterranean from as far away as Spain and Greece. So you had the mixing of ancient philosophies with Roman, Greek, Egyptian, and then the Jews. Alexander himself had invited the Jews from Palestine, from Judea, to come and settle in Alexandria. So you had this very rich cultural fusion building. It was very lively, 
was a very lively place. And so it was the place where Western alchemy born. And that really is how I came into write about Miriam Bot Isaac. When I was studying chemistry in graduate school, I was taking a course on the history and development of concepts in chemistry. Now, I had studied many chemistry courses, but I had never studied it from a historical perspective. In fact, chemistry is never taught from that perspective. It's taught from the perspective of this is what we know now as if we've always known that. No regard for the early ideas and how they evolved and elaborated into the concepts we have today. So when I was studying the historical development of concepts in chemistry, our professor assigned that we write a paper about a significant early concept, and I had no idea what to write. No idea. The time was passing. I was a very serious student. The time was passing, and I was about ready to cry in frustration. So I decided to walk through the aisles in the library, in the stacks, and see if anything caught my eye. Well, I was looking up at the heavens for some kind of inspiration, so I bumped into a bookcase, and out fell a book from the very top shelf, and it fell right on my toe, and it opened up, and it opened up to a page about this woman you mentioned, Maria Hebrea. She was the most famous woman in the Western world, in Alexandria, and later on, for 1,500 years. I just wanted to know what her life was like. She had to have been very plucky because alchemy, practicing alchemy, was a capital offense during the Roman Empire. The emperor was afraid that alchemists would be able to synthesize gold and overthrow his currency and then dominate the empire. So he made alchemy a capital offense. And yet this woman, Maria Hebrea, and that was, by the way, her pseudonym. We'll never know much about her, her real name, her family, which gave me free to invent Miriam Bot Isaac, as I wanted, but I invented her to be like Maria Hebrea, to be plucky and adventuresome and be willing to risk her life on all kinds of adventures. I did that all in honor of this woman, Maria Hebrea, who was famous for so many years. Do you know that Isaac Newton, one of our greatest scientists, wrote over a million words about alchemy? He was an alchemist also. I did not know that. And he, I know it's astounding. And what's astounding for most people who just think of alchemy as some foolish concept in the past of changing base metals into gold, they don't realize there was a rich theoretical framework that was based on Aristotle. It wasn't foolish at all. And that their pursuit ultimately was not just to perfect metals like iron and turn them into gold, but to perfect human life, to rejuvenate human life, to extend human life. And so alchemists had considerable medical knowledge, and that serves Miriam Bot Isaac very well as an amateur sleuth. So I got caught up in writing this paper on Maria Hebrea, who landed on my toe, and then after I graduated, and I would still, you won't believe this, Yvonne, but for 20 years, I thought of her when I was at red lights at a traffic or waiting in line at the supermarket. All that time, I try to imagine what was life like. What did it mean for her to walk down the dry, dusty streets of Alexandria? She lived in the Jewish district. What was that like? That was 
far from being a ghetto, that was the prized land that Alexander the Great promised the Jews for coming to Alexandria. In any case, I got really wrapped up in her, didn't I? But think about this, though, June. When you, little realizing when you looked up and the, the book hit you, Everything in our life happens for a reason. That I believe with all of my heart. Every, there is a reason that everything happens. And at the point of frustration, you, you hit this bookcase. The book falls. It opens up to this, this woman. And understanding chemistry from a totally different viewpoint opened your eyes to all kinds of possibilities. Yes, it did. It triggered my imagination, which is what happens to you, too, whether you're painting, whether you're writing. It triggers your imagination. It connects with you. I connected with her. Who knows? Maybe in another life you knew her. Well, you know, at the end of each book I write, I I have respect for you, Maria Hebrea, I hope you forgive the liberties I've taken with you, but I hope you also understand the profound respect I have for your accomplishments. I write something like that at the end of each book because I do feel connected to her. When I write about her, I am Maria about Isaac. And I've escaped from... No, you've escaped from this world into their world. Yes, I have. Let me ask you this. In in that time period, and, and for people who are not historians of that time period, Alexandria no longer exists. It fell due to invasions and everything else that was going on. But at one time, Alexandria like you said, was very, very rich in uh, product and produce and trade in gold, silver, gems. That was a very rich part of that country, and it was a well-respected part of that country. And the, the, the people were... So different and yet so much the same, because it, from everything that I've studied on on Alexandria, it, that time period was filled with so many things that we have now. Yes, it was. As a matter of fact, I think it's surprising what they had and what they were able to build, and what they were able to learn. You're right about Alexandria. Much of the Alexandria that existed in the first year of the Common Era is gone. Earthquakes also contributed toward the parts of of Alexandria I write about as really falling into the sea. It's being excavated, but it certainly isn't the city that it was 2,000 years ago. One of the advantages Alexandria had was the medical school and the great library were established there. So it was a center for scholars from all over the Mediterranean world. And they fed on each other. They didn't have to pay taxes. The Roman taxes were horrendous. But they were forgiven and had other privileges. Their taxes were forgiven, and they had other privileges. So they were very free to work, and that made the city really great. In particular, in the medical school, for example, they were allowed to conduct autopsies, vivisections on the human body. So they learned about anatomy, for example, and their medicine was really very advanced. We could pick on them and say, 
they thought what they thought the cure for rabies was or other things. But in fact, their approach to medicine, unlike the Romans, who were very superstitious, the Greeks, who were the scholars of the medical school, were really scientific. And they believed in dissection and they believed in experimentation. And so they, had, they built a civilization that gave them many things that we could admire today. They knew the approximate size of the earth, for example. And many wow. of the scientific instruments we have, Maria Hebrea invented many of them, but they were in existence then, the distillation apparatus, for example. Now, you may not know what a distillation apparatus is, but I'll bet many of our listeners know what a double boiler is. Maria Habrea invented that because in her chemical procedures, she wanted to be able to very slowly heat a metal. And so she invented the double boiler. And if you love chocolate, I'll bet you've got a double boiler in your kitchen. I have several. I make double boilers. <laughs> I create them. <laughs> but it, that, that is amazing that something that simple we still use yes. today. Yes, we do. Something for the very that same simple. reason that she did. Yes. Yes, for the very same reason she did. Wow. As a matter of fact, it bears her name. In French, it's called Maria's Bath. Uh, Bath de Marie. How interesting. The Bath of. So, uh, we do have lots of things. Of course, I'm partial to things that she invented. But the scientific world was very active then in medicine as well. And I'll just give one more example because it just tickles me so. The aspirin that we use today was invented by a man named Bayer. That's acetylsalicylic acid. It was recognized as being a medicine in the bark of the willow tree that they had in Alexandria. If someone was sick, to lower their fever, they would use an extract from the bark of the willow tree and perhaps the leaves, I don't know. But the point is that they had a knowledge of pharmacology that we still can relate to today. And we think we're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> We well, should go back to the old ways. I'm telling you, they were a lot smarter than we are. Because they relied on nature, they relied on common sense, and they relied on listening to each other and not assuming that everybody was a cookie cutter. <laughs> you know, in many ways, they had a, a better approach you know, they didn't believe in medicine, for example, that there's a pill to cure every ill. They didn't look at illness through such a narrow focus, such a narrow lens. I would just give them a pill. Instead, they really looked much more holistically about diet and habits and exercise. And they brought the patient into the treatment, which we're only learning to do now. Yeah, because that was one of the things that I always fought with the doctors about with my husband is when I took him to one doctor, let's say his heart doctor who I adored, before he would give him any medicine or do any procedure, I said, you do realize that he has all these other underlying conditions that we have to take into consideration. You can't just treat the heart. You've got to understand that what you do for the heart may affect something else, and then we're going to have a conversation. He said, I know, Yvonne, that's why I have you here. So, <laughs> because I was very cognizant of 
you can't just treat one thing. You right. have to treat the whole man. Yes, you do. And the Greeks understood that, and that was part of the practice of medicine in Alexandria. So I found the city fascinating. I found Miriam Bot Isaac, my version of Maria Hebrea, heroic. And so that's how I happened to start writing this series. And now I'm actually doing a few short stories because I like that genre. And I would like my next book to be a collection of short stories to follow the fifth book that I've just written. Actually, it's it's been out for less than a year, but it was published oh, almost a year ago. Right when so it's I'm not brand new. Still, still not, still not ready to come back to this because my biggest supporter wasn't with me. So, let's start since we're 14 minutes out from the end of the show. Let's talk about these books. The first one that you wrote, which one was it of the series where you introduced the first your one? Yes, the first one was the deadliest lie. And I introduced Miriam but, and her family, but I also introduced the city of Alexandria and her, the Roman occupation and her work as an alchemist. And so that book is about Miriam has to search for a set of documents about alchemy that were stolen from her home. And they were stolen by a guest in her house. So she believed that no one really knew how dangerous possession of those documents were. And so she had to trace who might have stolen it, why they might have stolen it, and to try to protect them from letting the documents get out because then they'd surely be executed. So that's the drama in that book, her quest for those stolen documents. And then the second one is The Deadliest Hate. The Deadliest Hate takes Miriam to Caesarea because an alchemical secret that was part of her documents that were stolen actually ends up there. And so she wants to see how much these secrets have spread. The, um, the thing is, while the deadliest hate picks up on the idea of the documents, the stories, each story in the series, in fact, stands alone. It's absolutely independent. The only things that carry over are the setting and the core characters. And Miriam does get older. Her relationships mature. But each story itself, each mystery, is different. So the mystery in Caesarea is still tracing documents, but there's an entirely different threat. Because when Miriam goes into Caesarea, there's a band of Judean terrorists who are trying to assassinate her. That's the subplot that doesn't, on the surface, seem to have anything to do with the alchemical documents that she's trying, or the secrets. She's tracked down the documents, but she's trying to see how the secrets spread so she can prevent them from spreading further. And then the next one after that is the deadliest, which one? The deadliest sport. That's back in Alexandria. Now, Miriam, I didn't tell you this, was a twin. Her brother, her fraternal twin brother, became a gladiator. He adored everything that was Roman, very different from Miriam's perspective. And so this was about their relationship. 
the deadliest sport, you might think, could refer to the gladiatorial arena, and there are significant scenes that take place there. But the deadliest sport is actually murder. So there are really two deadly sports, and again, you have the plot and the subplot, the murder and the life of a gladiator, and Miriam's reaction to that life and her relationship with her brother. Then you move on to the deadliest fever. Yes. In many ways, that's been my favorite. That also takes place in Alexandria. It takes place in Alexandria because just prior to the book, story starting, there's a jewel heist that takes place at the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was an important city at that time. You might remember that the Apostle Paul was there at about the time we're talking, the first century. Uh This first century of the Common Era is the same time as contemporaneous with the development of Christianity, which actually starts off very slowly until Christianity becomes a religion unto its own. And Paul was kind of the bridge there in that uh, transformation from the Christian life as being an outgrowth of Judaism and then taking on a religion uh, of a civilization, a religious, became a religious civilization of its own. So the time was very important. This heist in Ephesus was very important. But the key to this book is that the thieves get on a ship and run away to Alexandria. And so that's what brings us to Alexandria. And something funny is going on with Jules and Alexandria, and that's how Miriam gets involved in the jewels and in and the theft of these jewels from Ephesus. And the fifth book, the deadliest, but yeah, go ahead. The fifth book, the deadliest thief, builds on this, but it's also completely independent. One of the three jewel thieves in Alexandria, survives. And the question is, see, he survives. He wants to take possession of the two, the two other thieves' jewels, their share. He wants them. And at the same time, Miriam's best friend is kidnapped. And again, you have the two plots that are going to weave together. Who kidnaps her and why? And so the question there is, why has the last surviving jewel thief kidnapped Miriam's friend, and can Miriam find her before it's too late? So that's really a race against time. So each story is different, but I've enjoyed every one. I know you're working on a new one. How can you help it, really? (laughs) How can you help it? And what is the name of this one? Are are you ready to tell that? I'm working on a set of short stories. And I've written a few. I've written, let me see, other than the science fiction one, I've written five, and, and I'm writing now my sixth one. And I hope to bind them together and have it called The Deadliest deceptions because each story involves a deception a couple of them are lock room mysteries that's kind of a subgenre of mysteries and I won't tell you anything else (laughs) well you're not going to believe this we are down to the five minute mark I do believe it I've had a wonderful time speaking with you and speaking with your audience, whom I know are just warm, lovely people who like to read. And and, and I can't wait. 
I can't wait for them to read your work because I watch a lot of history channels on on television, especially when it comes to the Middle East. That part of the country has always fascinated me. I would I would sit down and study Egyptian history and the pharaohs and the Caesars and and all that history even before it was a thing to study because that was the cradle of civilization. Yes, it was. So are you going to tell my readers how they can find my books? Where I'm to look? Gonna Amazon, for example? I'm going to let you do that. I want you to do that. Okay, you want me to do it? Well, I'll tell yes, them to ma'am. go to Amazon.com or they can order them from their favorite bookstore. But uh, if they go to Amazon.com, that's always open. It's open now. And they just look for the author, June Trope, T-R-O-P, and they'll get uh, a page for each one of those books. They can read about the books, and they can decide whether they want to have the story take place in Caesarea, if they want it to be in Alexandria, if they want it to be about the deadliest fever, which is about rabies, that's the fever, or jewel heist, or whatever they want to read about. They can go to my website also, www.junetrope.com. And they can drop me a line. They go to my website, they can say hello. I'd love to say hello and see what they like to read. Have them give me some advice. And I'm going to tell you what they will, ladies and gentlemen. You will get a history lesson, along with life's lessons, along with just sheer entertainment in June's book. She is indeed one of the best storytellers out there. So. Go and look her up, June Trope. She's on Amazon. She also has her own website. She's also on Facebook. Look her up, friend her, because she is one amazing author. Thanks so much, Yvonne. It's been a pleasure spending the evening with you. Will you come back? I surely will. Okay. To um ladies and gentlemen, our next show is supposed to be on the 29th. I may have to change that, but author Glenn uh Stripling will be my guest, but I may have to change it to another time or an earlier time in the night as opposed to 8 o'clock because there's a show right behind it. Sometimes I can get on there, sometimes I can't. So I may have to change it to another night. I will be bringing June back, especially when she gets ready to release her collection of short stories. And I'm going to be releasing a collection of articles that I wrote for our church bulletin. And it's going to be like based, you can use it as a devotional. It is called Soulful Inspirations, and I think in this environment we're in right now that we all need something to give us hope, to hold on to, to know that through it all God has a plan. God is in control. God can stop anything when he feels like it, but I think he wants us as human beings to understand that the greatest of these is love. So watch for that. Watch for June's new book. Check her website. I'm sure she will be plugging that as she moves along. And go and buy her books because she's an amazing, amazing, she's an amazing person. She's a beautiful woman, and and she is Miriam Bat-Isaac. So until the 29th or thereabouts, We will um, be back unless I get some other folks that want to come on this show or I decide to run a show. But understand, support your local authors, your indie authors especially, because this is a a trying time for all of us, and, and we all appreciate you reading our works. June, thank you, my love, for being persistent and for coming on this show. I have learned a lot. And I've learned a lot from you, Yvonne. Thank you so much.
You are welcome. I cannot wait for you to come back. So, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, this is Off the Chain. I am your host, Yvonne Mason, and with my guest author, June Trope, we will be talking to you soon. Okay, we are we are now in the archive part of the show, but I did want to tell you before we hung up that I will put this show up on my page when it goes up into archives, and you can share it with any. I'm going to tag you in it, and you share it with, put it on your web page, put it out anywhere you want to, and share it so people that didn't get to hear it live can hear it in archives. Use it for your advantage. Thank you so much, Yvonne. I can't thank you enough. You are welcome, my love. Be well. Be well and be strong. You too. And I can't wait to have you back. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Talk later. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.